morning's uh, scripture reading is taken from two passages. First, uh, from Genesis uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. That's uh, in your pew Bible on page 1. And the second passage is taken from Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And that's in your pew Bible, page 926. Shall we stand uh, as we read God's inerrant word of God in honor of him? Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, and over the living stocks, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Acts chapter 17, verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And pray for us once more. Father, thank you for your holy and inerrant word. And we pray now for the help of your Holy Spirit to have a clear understanding of your truth, that it might shape our thinking, our feeling, and our living, how we behave and treat especially other people that you have placed in our lives. May you open up our eyes to see your truth and your glory. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you're probably aware, tomorrow is a national holiday to observe the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. His actual birthday is January 15th, but we mark off the third Monday of January every year. We call it MLK Day. Now, uh, in our church, I know we talk a lot about Martin Luther, the 16th century Protestant reformer, so I don't want any of you to be confused. We're talking about a different Martin Luther today. We're talking about Martin Luther King. Uh, we're talking, of course, about the 20th century Baptist preacher and civil rights leader. This Martin uh, was the one who was instrumental in the civil rights movement in the 60s uh, that ended legally sanctioned segregation in our society. Now, I just want to be clear, this morning's message is not focused on MLK himself, but what we are doing is we're taking uh, the occasion of MLK Day and doing some extended reflection on the convictions that were so central to MLK's resounding message. 
His most notable speech, of course, was his I Have a Dream speech, which he delivered um, uh, on the march of, uh, during the March on Washington in August of 1963. There are so many memorable lines in that speech. One that really sticks out for, for many people would be the following, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I think that message resounds in us all. It's a beautiful dream that I'm sure that all of us do want to see come true. And we should recognize that by the grace of God, that dream is coming true. If you just reflect back on the last 60 years, when, when that speech was delivered, our society has dramatically changed. Not only have laws changed, but even hearts and minds have changed as well. Because back in the 60s, we had presidential and gubernatorial candidates who were openly running on platforms that supported segregation. They were able to get nominated by their parties. Some of them even won office. So thank God that that would be unthinkable in our day. Someone running so openly on a, on a platform that, that, that's so racist like that w- wouldn't have a chance in, in an election. So thank God for that. Public opinion has, has progressed, and the vast majority of people in our nation would wholeheartedly support Dr. King's dream. But that's not to suggest that the problem is completely solved. That racism, whether in our individual hearts or within the larger societal system, as if that's just a thing of the past. No, that dream that Dr. King so winsomely described, we have to recognize, is still in process of being fulfilled. Each of us also, we have to see, has a part to play in that, a responsibility to work towards a more just and equitable society. Now, sadly, in just the last five or or six years, We've seen racial divides fracture our nation, our churches, and even our families. The situation, of course, has been exasperated by a number of high-profile police shootings and killings of unarmed black people, by xenophobic hate speech and violence committed against Asian Americans, especially which drastically increased during the pandemic, particularly towards the elderly, and by the unveiled animosity in the speech of political leaders towards immigrants and refugees, especially those coming from Latin America. So being black, yellow, or brown is still consequential to how we are perceived and treated in a society that is predominantly white. The color of your skin still does make a difference. We can acknowledge that, while at the same time being grateful to God for how far we have come since the 1960s, we can and we should recognize both. Now, since we're going to be going through Genesis chapters 1 to 11 in our current series, and since we just explored last week this concept of being made in the image of God, what we want to do this morning is to highlight the theological underpinning of that dream that Dr. King has inspired so many of us to pursue. I really wonder, I I wonder how many people realize that that particular vision for society was founded on the theological conviction that every single human being, white, black, yellow, brown, 
that we are all made in the image of God. Do people realize that Dr. King was making theological arguments, which means without the Imago Dei, the image of God, his dream would just be a pipe dream. There would be no foundation. There would be nothing solid to build upon. I mean, I really think it's no coincidence that it was a Baptist preacher who came up with this dream, who had this dream, who made these arguments, who cast this beautiful vision of ethnic harmony. Now, I I realize that Dr. King came from a theological tradition that we would uh, probably describe as liberal. I'd probably disagree with him on some key points of Christian doctrine, but not on this one. Not on the doctrine of creation in the Imago Dei. That mankind was made in the image of God, that every single one of us, regardless of our skin tone, our hair texture, our our body type, our facial features, it doesn't matter. We all bear the image of God. Dr. King believed that, and we ought to believe it too. So this morning, I want to flesh out this idea that every person that you're ever going to meet is a divine image bearer. And I want to apply that conviction to the issues of race and racism. Now to do that, I'm going to start off by making three observations from the text, from scripture, and then we're going to base, and based on those observations about the image of God, we're going to try to draw out three implications. If you want to follow along, look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline there with the three observations and also three implications. Let's start with our first observation, and that is that all human beings share the image of God. All human beings share the image of God. Now, we touched on this last week uh, when we covered Genesis uh, 1, verses 26 to 27. So let me just read that section again. Verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, over the weeks and the months to come, we are actually going to keep coming back to these key verses because they are so foundational to so many doctrines that we hold as Christians our view on the sanctity of life, our view on the sanctity of marriage, our view on the givenness of gender, all of these issues are rooted right here in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27. And the same goes, of course, for the issue of race and racism. Now, when we did an overview of Genesis 1, we saw how on the sixth day of creation, God made all the land animals. Back in verse 24, the livestock and the creeping things and and the beasts of the earth. And we saw that on that very same day, he made us, humans. See, we didn't get our own day of creation. We had to share it with the cows, caterpillars, and cocker spaniels. That is in order to emphasize our commonality with all these other creatures. And that's that's why we're not surprised when zoologists or geneticists point out the similarities between humans and other animals, whether in our physical structure or our genetic makeup, we do bear a strong resemblance 
Physically, we bear strong resemblance, especially to those in the primate family. And chemists are going to remind us that all living organisms are really made up of the same stuff, the same molecules, mainly carbon. We can accept that. We acknowledge it. That's what you would actually expect when reading Genesis 1. But the one difference, though, the one key difference between humans and all other living organisms is the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. In some sense, we resemble God in ways that all other creatures do not. It's only in regards to mankind do we read these words in verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now that same language, after our image and likeness, pops up later. If you look in Genesis chapter 5 in verse 3, that's where Adam, it says, quote, fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So as a son resembles his father, you could say that we human beings resemble God the Father. But in what sense is this so? In what sense do we resemble God? Well, historically, some have tried to argue that it means we share some sort of physical resemblance, just as I'm sure Seth shared a physical resemblance to Adam, his father, then they would say that somehow we share a similar resemblance. But I think actually that would be a mistake. That would, that would be a, a wrong interpretation here because it would be a misreading of the anthropomorphic way in which God is typically depicted in Scripture. So when you read in the Bible about God's face or about his eyes, or about his, his arms or his hands, these are merely anthropomorphic descriptions. It's not, the Bible's not actually suggesting that God has a face or eyes or arms or hands like we do. But because, of course, of our creaturely limitations, we're only able to describe God using human categories. And we know that's inadequate, but that's all we have to work with. And that's, that's how God is described um, in, in the scriptures, using those anthropomorphic terms. So I, I think we can rule out the idea that being made in God's image implies some sort of physical resemblance to him. But what we can affirm is that being made in his image could refer to the many ways in which we share attributes and characteristics with our creator. That would include our intelligence, our virtues, our sense of morality, these are things you're not going to find in any other animal within the animal kingdom. As well, though, being made in the image of God could also refer to how humans, and humans alone, are made as spiritual beings with the capacity to consciously relate to God and to glorify him as our creator. All other creatures on the earth do glorify God, but only humans can glorify God consciously. We do so along with the hosts of heaven. The angels glorify him consciously, but in Genesis 1, we're not, angels aren't included. We're just talking about earthly creatures, and among earthly creatures, it's humans alone that can consciously glorify our creator. As well, though, another way of looking at it, that being made in the image of God could also refer to our responsibility to rule on earth on God's behalf as his vice regents. And we looked a little bit at that last week about what it means to be ruling on God's behalf in his image. 
And contextually, I think this makes the most sense because right after God says, let us make man in our image, he gives us dominion to rule over the earth, to rule over the other creatures. So really, friends, however we understand what it means to be made in the image of God, the main point for us to consider this morning is that whatever that means, it applies to all of us, to every single human being. Everyone begotten of a human father and human mother is a human being. And no matter your size, no matter your mental capacity, no matter your physical ability, no matter your skin color, hair texture, facial appearance, every human being is a divine image bearer. Even the fall of man did not erase the image of God from us. Now that image is marred, that image, that reflection is blurred, and because of human sinfulness, we're kind of like bent mirrors. We're bent in on ourselves, reflecting mainly ourselves, falling short of our purpose to reflect the image of God. That's what sin is. It's falling short of the glory of God. But even still, even in our fallen state, we still bear the image of God. I mean, just consider Psalm 8. We've read Psalm 8 in the last two Sundays, portions of that. And in Psalm 8, there, this is, of course, after the fall, King David is writing Psalm 8, and he affirms there that mankind is still, even in our fallen state, we're still set apart from all of creation. We still have dominion over the works of God's hands. That means we still are in his image. We never lose the image of God. So what that means is that no human being, no matter how fallen, how sinful, how evil, has lost or can lose the image of God. So that's our first observation. That all human beings share the image of God and cannot lose the image of God. The second observation is that all human beings share a common ancestry. We share a common ancestry. That's what we see in the Genesis creation account, especially when it zooms in on day six over in chapter two, and it zooms in on the creation of the first pair, Adam and Eve. And from this pair, everyone on earth and everyone throughout human history can trace our lineage. Now, I know someone might argue that I am overlooking the highly poetic and highly figurative nature of this text, and I'm wrongly assuming that it intends to teach that everyone comes from Adam and Eve. Now, I still think Genesis 1 and 2 does teach that, but let's just say for the sake of argument, let's just go over to the New Testament. Let's go to the New Testament to a text that is clearly not poetic and clearly not figurative. Let's listen to Acts chapter 17, verse 26. Here the Apostle Paul is preaching to the Athenians in the Areopagus, and he's describing God as the one true God who made the whole world and everything in it, quote, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. All from one man. And of course, that one man is referring to Adam. That means authors of the Old Testament and the New Testament affirm our common ancestry in Adam. Now, why am I stressing that? Why am I making a point of this? Well, just think about it. 
unless every human being is a biological descendant of the first human pair who was created in the image of God, unless that is so, then there is room for someone to argue that some people groups today may possibly descend from another lineage and therefore are not image bearers of God, or at least not full image bearers like us. And the us would just refer to whichever dominant ethnic group is trying to make that argument. And friends, I I hope you realize I'm not just speculating that someone one day might make this kind of twisted argument. Historically, people have argued this way. Even people who read the Bible and try to live by the Bible have argued in this way to justify the mistreatment, enslavement, and even genocide of marginalized and oppressed minority groups. So this is why it's so important for us to affirm that Adam and Eve were historical figures who really did exist. They are not mythical characters in some story. It really matters that everyone in human history can trace our lineage back to this first pair. It's this common ancestry in Adam and Eve that supports the prior observation that we just made, that all human beings share the image of God. So this this isn't just a theological issue. This is an ethical issue. It's not just about Bible interpretation. It's about morality. It's about how we treat people. The biblical creation account is so important for undercutting all arguments of racial superiority. In fact, it goes even further, and it challenges the legitimacy of the modern classification of people into different races. You know, it's common parlance for us to speak of different races of people. I mean, when you fill out a census form, you know, you are asked to identify your race, and you're given a bunch of options to choose from. And then, you know, every, every time the census comes out, it changes a little bit. But, but you, you know, you're, you're supposed to choose from either white, black, Hispanic, Asian, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there's many different options. But biblically, biblically, there's only one race. It's the human race. In this creation account, We just have people that are made in the image of God, distinguished not from each other, but distinguished from all other creatures. Now, that leads to our third observation. While the Genesis account does not classify human beings along modern racial categories, we should recognize that it does at least distinguish us according to ethnicity. The third observation is that all human beings have an ethnic identity. In other words, we should be using the category of ethnicity rather than race. Race is an unhelpful category because it relies on differences in physical traits in order to classify and group different people. And traditionally, it's focused on skin tone, hair texture, facial features, and other physical traits, but that approach is far too simplistic and too generalized. So, for example, I I would argue that the term Asian as a category of race is deficient. I mean, sure, on a superficial level, Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, Vietnamese, and Filipinos, yes, we do share some physical, similar physical traits, 
lumping us all together and calling us Asians is going to be convenient. But in doing so, man, you gloss over the rich heritage and cultural distinctiveness of each of those people groups. Just because you have a room full of people who look the same doesn't mean you're dealing with a homogenous group. A more descriptive and helpful category, and frankly, a more biblical one, would be ethnicity. Because ethnicity focuses on the cultural aspects of group identity rather than just the physical aspects, the physical traits. In fact, people in the same ethnic group, or as missiologists would call them, people groups, people in the same group could even manifest different physical traits, but what they do share in common are thick unifiers like language, dress, food, customs, values, and even religion. Now, if we return to Genesis, what we're going to see is the first mention of these distinct ethnic groups popping up in Genesis chapter 10. We're going to look at that later in our series. After the flood account, the text walks through the genealogy of Noah and his three sons, and it ends in chapter 10, verse 32, with this, this, uh, this verse. Quote, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now, in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, the word for nations is the Greek word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity. So what we see in the Genesis account is that ethnicity is part of God's sovereign plan for creation. And as we just you know, read earlier in Acts 17, 26, he made from one man every nation, every ethnos of mankind. His plan was to fill the earth with a multitude of people who are grouped together in a multitude of ethnos ethnic people groups. In Genesis 1:28, God commands man to multiply, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Later on in Genesis 9 verse 1, he reiterates that same command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that's exactly what we see starting to happen in Genesis 10. We see that command being fulfilled as the human, the human race begins to spread abroad the earth, diversifying into many different nations or different ethnicities. So what we see played out in Genesis is that ethnicity is a part of God's good plan. But at the same time, having said that, we shouldn't ignore Genesis 11. I know some of you guys, you're astute, and you're thinking, well, what about Genesis 11 and the story of the Tower of Babel? Babel, Because there we learn that the birth of languages and the scattering of all ethnos throughout the earth was rooted in human sin and rebellion. It was, it was the Lord's response to the human race's refusal to scatter and to fill the earth on their own. But even still, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to Genesis 11 in our series. We'll talk more about that. But even still... That doesn't mean that the only natural conclusion that you can make is that the existence of all the different ethnicities in the world is a bad thing, that it's not part of God's good creation order. 
to understand the role of ethnicities in his creation order, all you have to do is just, you're reading the beginning of the story right now. Just turn to the very end. Look at the end of the biblical story when God renews all of creation. Because when Christ comes back, when Christ returns, in the end, we are told in Scripture that whatever was a consequence of the original fall, whatever was unintended in God's very good creation, through Christ and his return, will be reversed and completely gone. So whatever remains in the new heavens and the new earth must therefore be very good and part of God's original design. Well, when you get to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we are told that one of the things that remains in the new heavens and new earth are the ethnos, the nations. Let me read Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, ethnos, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So apparently our ethnic distinctions will carry on into eternity. God won't erase our ethnic identities and, and he won't reverse the human race back to speaking only one language which therefore means that our different languages and our different ethnicities are part of God's very good sovereign design for his world. So friends, here's the bottom line. Just as God made us with a gender, and I know that's, that's arguable in, in today's you know, conversations, and we're going to touch on that later on in our series. But just as God made us with a gender, God also made us with an ethnicity. I have an ethnic identity. You have an ethnic identity. Ours might be the same, or it might be different. Either way, since they're part of God's design, our ethnic identities should be cherished as good gifts, and they should never become a source of either pride or shame. God made you with an ethnicity. You should be thankful. And you should value that. So those, my friends, are our observations. Now, uh, the observations, I'll summarize it again. We all share the image of God. We all share a common ancestry. We all have an ethnic identity. Now let's consider some implications. Implications of the Imago Dei. First, Racism will flourish in environments where the image of God is overlooked and undervalued. Racism will flourish in environments where we're not talking about and living out the image of God. Now, I'm not suggesting here that racism can only be resisted by those who hold to a biblical worldview. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that without a belief in the Imago Dei, you're just going to end up a raving racist. No, we, we should be grateful for common grace, which explains how those who reject the Genesis creation account can still believe in things like human rights and, and, the, and, and the dignity of all, irrespective of our ethnicity. Thank God that you don't have to be a Christian to, to still believe that. But what I'm suggesting is that without Genesis 1 and 2, 
without the conviction that every single person you're ever going to meet is a divine image bearer, then we lack a firm foundation to keep up the fight. We lack a firm foundation to continually resist racism. If we don't have the image of God, then on what basis do we ground our conviction that some ethnic groups are... um, are, on, on what, what basis do we ground our conviction that some ethnic groups are not more superior or inferior to others? If humanity does not possess an inherent value attributable to our creator, then the most that we can say we possess would be a functional value, a value that's rooted in what you can contribute to us, contribute to the world at large. But if all we have is functional value, then why wouldn't more advanced peoples with intellectual, scientific, and technological superiority, why wouldn't they be considered more superior than other people groups? Now, I I think it's only fair for us to acknowledge that historically, even Christian nations that were steeped in a biblical worldview, have still been very racist and imperialistic. Let's not, let's not uh, you know, forget that. But let's say that it's not because of their belief in the Omago Day they did those things. It was actually in spite of it. They either, I would argue, overlooked or undervalued this doctrine that is so foundational to Christian faith and ethics. So, Practically, friends, what what this means is that resisting racism starts with good theology. I, I know there's a lot of pressure out there to stop talking about it, stop praying about it, and just do something already. Do the right thing. But doing the right things will only be sustained in the long haul by believing the right things about the Imago Dei. And so that's why I don't think we're neglecting our duty or avoiding the problem by doing all this preaching and teaching. Just as weeds will flourish in your garden if you don't give proper attention to the soil, racism will continue to flourish if we don't tend to our theological foundations. That's why, friends, it is so important for us to help each other to develop a robust doctrine of man and of the image of God. This is important for the fight to continue to resist racism. So that's the first implication. Second, ethnicity is a key component of your identity, but it must not be primary. It's important, but it should not be ultimate. Again, let let me stress that your ethnicity, as I said earlier, is a part of God's very good design for you. It's part of your identity, a a crucial part of your identity. But because of the Imago Dei, you can take any person in the world and you will share far more in common with that person compared to any perceived differences between you. You might have different ethnicities. You might have different skin tones. You might have different cultural customs and tastes. You might speak different languages, but you share the image of God which outweighs all of those differences. 
This is especially the case. If the person that is in front of you is a Christian like you, that means you share an even deeper and stronger bond with that person. You are both in Christ. By the grace of God, through faith in his sons living and dying and rising again for you and for your salvation, the two of you share not just the image of God, but the image of Christ. You are both human beings and your new creations in Christ. And there, my friends, is nothing, nothing more primary to your identity than being new creations in Christ. That's why I try to avoid communicating that either my, my ethnicity or my nationality or my gender is primary to my identity. They, they are key components, just not primary. So I am not a Chinese-American man who happens to be a Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be a Chinese-American man. My identity in Christ is primary. But, having said that, that in no way implies that being a Christian is the only component of my identity that really matters. It doesn't mean that we should only focus on our shared faith and attempt to be colorblind in the way that we relate to each other. Only those in the ethnic majority have the luxury of living a colorblind life. As an ethnic minority, I am very much aware on a daily basis that I am an ethnic minority in my neighborhood, my city, my country. And so it's not helpful to be told by well-meaning people that they don't even think of me as Chinese. That, man, we have so much in common, we're so similar. They, they forget sometimes that I'm Chinese. I don't want them to. That's not helpful. I, I don't want them to ignore my Chineseness. That's part of who I am. That's, that's how God made me. I value my ethnicity. I, I, I seek to honor my culture and my ethnic heritage, which is why I want others to see my ethnicity and to learn to hopefully appreciate my culture as they do their own. Honestly, the only place where I can forget that I'm Chinese is here in this church, where I am part of the ethnic majority, which ought to make me all the more sensitive to those who worship with us who happen to be of a other ethnicity. Since the majority of my week is spent navigating life in spaces where I am an ethnic minority, I am that much better prepared to come to church to now be in the majority and to be quick to empathize with the experience of those who are in the minority worshiping with us, fellowshipping with us in this church. I should be far more sensitive to their feelings of alienation and far more willing to lay aside my comforts and my preferences to help them to assimilate into this community because that's exactly how I want to be treated when I'm in spaces where I'm the minority. So this, my friends, should be the mindset that those of us who are Chinese ought to bring 
to the Chinese Heritage Church. Not coming here to prioritize our privilege, but rather to prioritize our responsibility to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's, I think, how we ought to be coming with that mentality every Sunday. And that leads to our last implication. The third implication. Ethnic diversity is good. Ethnic harmony is better. Ethnic diversity is good, but ethnic harmony is better. You know, multi-ethnicity is something a lot of churches have been pursuing, and there's a lot to be commended there. If the motivation is to glorify God and his gospel by demonstrating how our unity in Christ is stronger and deeper than all other, all natural bonds of affinity, man, that is a worthy pursuit. Pursuing ethnic, uh, multi-ethnicity for that motivation, that is a good thing. But I do find it troubling when churches and organizations get so focused on numbers and percentages trying so hard to get strong representation from all the major ethnic groups in their area. But if the goal is just to collect all the colors of the rainbow in one room, I'd say I think that's just too low of a goal. Multi-ethnicity for its own sake is not the point. I mean, even hell will be a multi-ethnic community. We shouldn't set the bar at ethnic diversity. We should be aiming for ethnic harmony. Hell is ethnically diverse, but of course there's no harmony there. But if ethnic harmony is the goal for our church and for all other churches, then it makes us desperate for the gospel. It makes us utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit to bind us together in the bond of peace. If ethnic diversity is all we're shooting for, then, then I guess we're just going to have to wait until the ratios change or until the percentages increase. Who knows how long that's going to take? But if we're always aiming for ethnic harmony, then that can be experienced now by the grace of God. That can be experienced now as we move in love and kindness towards anyone in our congregation of a different ethnicity than you. It doesn't matter what the percentages are, the ratios are. You just look around. If there's someone different than you, you move to them in love. That's how harmony can be experienced. You don't have to wait for, for conditions to change. That can be pursued today. And so I encourage you to start the year off with a goal. A goal to experience the sweetness of ethnic harmony in your life and in your relationships this new year. Now, that might mean reaching out to befriend a fellow church member who is of a different ethnic group than you. Sit down with them. Simply just hear their story. Maybe experience their culture. Taste their food. Learn their language. And best of all, praise God together. And pray together, even if you're speaking in different tongues. Ethnic diversity focuses on the quantity of numbers and percentages. But ethnic harmony focuses on the quality of friendships and relationships. And that's why ethnic diversity is good, but ethnic harmony is so much better. That's what I pray for us. Let's pray now. Father, I pray that you, by your spirit, through the power 
of your gospel and grace will continue to transform us individually and us corporately so that we would better reflect your heart and to see ourselves and each other through your eyes to recognize the Imago Dei in each of us and that you might create among our community in this church greater ethnic harmony for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.